In the late 90s, there was a certain sound taking over the airwaves. It had hints of rock, a little bit of folk, but it was nothing like Alanis Morissette or Fiona Apple. It also came in other flavors, like hip-hop, punk, and even ska. This sound had a message, one that made loving God and following the word of Jesus cool. This was contemporary Christian music, known by insiders as CCM. And these weren't your parents' hymns. Oh, baby, the best, <laughs> the hits. We're talking wow, and this is what I call me. Do you know wow, the mixtapes? No. This is Grace Baldridge, a queer non-binary Christian music artist who performs as Semler. Semler grew up in the 90s, and their dad was a minister, as well as a Christian concert promoter. So they listened to a lot of Christian music. Okay, so wow was like, you know how there's like, now that's what I call music. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So this was during the era of there always had to be a Christian alternative. So there was, wow, that's what I call music. <laughs> Does wow, like, stand for something? Christian? I don't think so. It's just a Christian knockoff. That's just simply, they were just like, the secular people have now, that's what I call music. Well, we have wow. And it was like third day and DC talk. And they had an Eminem equivalent in Christian music named KJ52. Wait, like a like explicitly an Eminem equivalent. He had a song called Dear Slim. You know how there was Stan? Yeah. KJ52 had a song to Eminem called Dear Slim. Dear Slim, I never wrote you all been calling. It's my second letter because son, I got some real problems. Because they would have these charts growing up where it'd be like, does your kid like Papa Roach? Then you should get them P.O.D. Like that, Whoa, they literally yeah. have, like we have the Christian equivalent. These charts are absolutely wild. Semler sent me one made by a company called Interlink. At the top, it says, who sounds like who? And then, just like Semler said, there are lists of secular artists and their Christian counterparts. And there are almost 500 artists listed. Say you're a pop punk fan. Check out Avril Lavigne equivalent Crystal Myers. Maybe you're more of a riot girl. Try Bikini Kill equivalent Inhabited. But wait, you're probably thinking, surely there's no Christian equivalent to my favorite band, Celtic punk outfit Dropkick Murphys. That's where you're wrong. Let me introduce you to Flatfoot 56. Here's the weird part. This massive, powerful industry, these hundreds upon hundreds of Christian equivalent artists and bands, the charts, None of that exists anymore. Or at least the version of it that exists today is a fraction of what it used to be. Now, the vast majority of the Christian music genre is made up of worship music, songs that are meant to be played in churches during worship services. Today we're asking, what happened? Why did the industry change? And what does that change mean for queer Christian artists like Semler? I'm Sarah Esikoff, and this is Sounds Gay, a podcast about the intersection of music and queerness. Over the next seven episodes, I'll take you with me to the middle of a trans mosh pit and to a heated rap battle. 
You'll go with me to the shores of the Pacific Ocean, where we'll fly remote-controlled airplanes with an 86-year-old pioneering sound artist. You'll witness firsthand the songwriting process of two friends as they explore non-binary and Filipino identity by writing an emo song. And together we'll attempt to unravel the legacy of a controversial composer whose death remains a mystery. Today we're focusing on a musical genre that you might not associate with queer culture, a genre you might even assume is homophobic. We're talking about contemporary Christian music, or CCM, which one former CCM artist describes as music made by Christians for Christians with the intent of creating more Christians. And we're zooming in around the year 2000, when the industry was at its biggest and most influential. We'll get back to Semler, but first I want you to meet an artist who was a CCM star in the late 90s, and who would later come out as a lesbian, Jennifer Knapp. You're in an autograph line in an arena, signing autographs and taking pictures, and kids are coming through the line just super fast, you know? And this one girl comes up to me, and leans across the table into my ear and goes, thank you so much. This music saved me from a life of homosexuality. Jennifer didn't grow up religious, but she did always feel a connection to the divine. I definitely was asking God questions, I think, privately from early adolescence. And so I had this kind of an awareness of my own spiritual need. When Jennifer went to college, she made friends with Christians who encouraged her to make a commitment to Jesus. So that's what I did. I, in the total evangelical model, I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior and got baptized. Jennifer started playing music around the time she was baptized. And her new Christian friends told her, you need to use your talent to spread the word of Jesus and nothing else. They said things like, You can't play the Indigo Girls anymore. <laughs> if you're going to play songs, you need to play songs about Jesus. Don't play songs from the world. Jennifer took her friend's advice and started playing shows during college. Sunday night gigs at churches or youth camps or coffee houses and things like that. And after a few years in the indie scene, her career was gaining steam. Goatee Records, a major Christian label, invited her to play a showcase in Nashville. I took a big breath. I'm like, I got this. I went and played my show and everyone went nuts. Jennifer ended up signing with Goatee. And all of a sudden, she was living the rock star life. The rooms she played in were packed and fans were asking for autographs. But being a hit in the Christian music world was about more than just the star treatment. Jennifer was expected to model Christian values and behavior. And a big part of that was sexual purity. If I was too close to a male, I'd had multiple times where people would come up to me and go, we're concerned about that relationship. Jennifer had committed to celibacy when she got baptized, but that didn't stop people in the industry from scrutinizing her every move when it came to relationships. It looks like you're shagging this person. You're too close to them. And if you're having sex with them, we're not going to play you on the radio. You're going to lose your record contract. And it wasn't just men. Her relationships with women raised eyebrows, too. And I knew that, like, being in the same-sex relationship was off the cards because any female that I was even remotely close to, people were like, that, you need to shut that down. Like, that is not cool. I'd been admonished for relationships that I'd had with other women that weren't even sexual. How are you supposed to have friends? Like, you can't be friends with men or women. <laughs> I didn't have friends. I didn't have friends. I mean, I, I had people that I worked with, but people who knew me, 
I didn't have any meaningful relationships with anybody. Jennifer was lonely. She was exhausted after back-to-back tours. And she privately disagreed with the industry's stances on sexual purity and homosexuality. The fan who told Jennifer that her music saved her from being gay was one of Jennifer's breaking points. That person might as well have said to me, you wouldn't have loved me unless I came up to you and told you that I wasn't gay anymore. It was one of those critical moments where I started to realize the implications of that art can have, how influential it can be, and how how it can be used as propaganda even outside of your own self. All the trophies I got as a kid were Bible quizzing related or memorizing your Bible. This is Karis Adele. Karis grew up, as she puts it, in a Christian bubble. And so I was not allowed to listen to any secular music or read secular books. But these days, she's a master's student in religious studies at the University of Virginia. And she's writing a book about how CCM was used to advance evangelical values, like sexual purity, traditional gender roles, and outlawing abortion. In the 90s, Christianity was booming in pop culture, even in the secular world. Friends I've talked to about this episode have been like, yeah, my parents weren't even Christian, but somehow I've seen, like, all of VeggieTales. And Karis says that was no accident. They wanted to have explicit Christian products, but in a way that was non-threatening so that the wider culture could embrace it. The they Karis is referring to here is the evangelical church, which actually isn't a single church or denomination. Evangelicalism is a movement within the wider Christian religion. Lots of different kinds of churches use the evangelical model, but what unites them is a focus on being born again, which is when someone personally accepts Jesus as their Lord and Savior, like Jennifer Knapp did in college. Throughout the 1980s, the numbers of evangelicals in the U.S. were growing, and so was the cultural awareness of the evangelical church. By the 90s, when people say Christian, they kind of mean evangelical. This growth continued into the 90s. It was the age of megachurches, and even smaller churches focused on being seeker-sensitive, meaning geared toward non-Christians who could be converted. You know, you can wear jeans to church, you don't have to dress up, like, come as you are was a really common tagline for a lot of churches. At the same time, the Christian consumer industry was taking off. Churches encouraged their members to make being Christian a visible part of their lives. The idea that you're living a Christian lifestyle becomes really important, and you live a Christian lifestyle by, one, being moral and doing all these white conservative things, but also by consuming Christian products and showing off those Christian products to people. And so the you know, music you listen to is like one aspect of performing your Christianity. CDs, concert tickets, merch, it was all a way to show how Christian you were. And as Semler was describing, CCM in the 90s was a massive, sprawling industry. There were pop CCM artists on the radio, like Amy Grant and Sixpence None the Richer. There were hugely popular Christian rappers. There were Christian punk, hardcore, and heavy metal scenes. Importantly, though, almost all these artists were white. 
The CCM industry was considered a white genre, separate from Black Christian music, which was placed under the gospel umbrella by music executives and marketed separately. I was just reading a magazine article from 1989 yesterday, and people were arguing to, like, you know, like a letter to the editor to, like, include Black artists just as music. And the editor of the magazine is like, well, you know, gospel music and CCM are completely separate things. And so they just, it's a very white industry, and I think intentionally it was maintained that way. CCM artists were marketed primarily to teenagers and parents of teenagers. And what's interesting about CCM as an industry is that the goal of this marketing wasn't just to make money. It was also to perpetuate evangelical Christianity. They're intentionally creating culture warriors. You know, their focus was on teenagers and, like, shaping them into Christians, but, like, really, like, Christians who you go stand out at your flagpole and pray in the morning in front of your school to show them how much more devout you are. Karis's favorite Christian band as a teenager, Audio Adrenaline, encouraged these public displays of worship. You're you know, praying around your flagpole in the morning before school and everyone's staring at you. You know you're weird and you know you stick out, but you also, like, you're holier than everybody else and you're better than everybody else. And so, like... There's this, like, sense of empowerment of, like, knowing that you're doing the right thing and everyone else is going to regret it either now or, you know, when they die and they're entering hell and they're going to be like, oh, man, that weird girl in high school was right about this. (laughs) And so, like, just that sense of, like, rightness, that it's like this, you know, eternal rightness. The kids praying at the flagpole stood out, and that was the point. There was this phrase, living differently. People should be able to look at you and look at the way you live and tell there's something different about you. This was how the Christian music industry made its appeal to teenagers in the 90s. The message was, don't be afraid to stand out for being Christian. Will and Grace and friends are on TV preaching the gospel of casual sex and gay pride. Your friends at school are probably having premarital sex. That's normal now. So if popular culture is embracing gay people and promiscuity, that makes Christianity counterculture. And by this logic, the most rebellious, anti-establishment thing you can do is love Jesus. The song I played earlier by the Avril Lavigne Christian equivalent, Crystal Myers, is literally called Anti-Conformity. She sings, It's all around. Pressure from my so-called friends. The next verse goes. In the bridge, Crystal sings. Image is overrated if it washes off in the rain. You know you gotta go deeper to go against the grain. Anti-Conformity was released in 2005, and you're unlikely to find something like it now. Experts like Karis agree that by 2010, the CCM landscape as it existed in the late 90s and early 2000s had disintegrated. This was thanks in part to the rise of music streaming. Today, secular music is more accessible than ever, 
And there seems to be growing acknowledgement, even in evangelical circles, that Christian teenagers are going to hear it. Remember the company I mentioned that made the Christian-equivalent music chart, Interlink? These days it also publishes discussion guides on how to use secular pop music to talk to your kids about Christian concepts. Like how to use Lil Nas X's Montero Call Me By Your Name to talk about biblical love and how to use Cardi B's WAP to talk about God's creation. Those are both real. Contemporary Christian music does still exist. Some of the Christian bands that were around in the early 2000s still perform, and there are occasional newcomers who make a big splash like Lauren Daigle, whose single You Say was a crossover success that made it onto the Billboard Hot 100 in 2019. But mostly, nowadays, CCM is dominated by worship music, music that's specifically meant to be played during church services. A good songwriting practice that I've heard before is that you want to get really, really specific in the verses. The verses should be straight, ripped out of your heart. This is Semler again, the queer Christian artist. And then in the chorus, you're bringing in the rest of the room, something that we can all, you know, relate to, something a bit more broad. Where I find Christian music comes up short is that they go broad immediately. (laughs) Like, we're we're starting broad, (laughs) we're starting broad, and then we're going to build up to something even more broad. Like, (laughs) your love is a river, like something that, like, is water metaphors are huge, just something that every single person can relate to. During the early isolated days of the pandemic, Semler was working on an EP, Preacher's Kid, when suddenly a memory they didn't realize they had appeared in their brain. The thing with repressed memories that I've learned is that the first time they come back, they're really vivid because your brain hasn't thought about it before. So it's like this uncorrupted file that re-enters your mind The memory was about something they witnessed as a teenager during a mission trip to Romania. On the trip, there was an evening where kids were invited to perform, and one girl did something on stage that alarmed the youth group leaders. She'd introduced a song that she'd written, and the song was about David and Jonathan, the story in the Bible, and how she related to it with a friend. In the Bible, David and Jonathan are described as two very close friends who make a covenant to each other that involves Jonathan stripping himself of his robe and giving it to David because Jonathan loved David, quote, as his own soul. I know that there are a lot of people who may have a very heterosexual interpretation of the story of David and Jonathan. However, a lot of times I've heard people talk about it like you have to push someone away because they are like tempting you and that that your desire to be close to each other is pushing you away from God. And it was that type of rhetoric and it was that type of a song. And then afterwards, they separated the girls from the guys and we were called to pray over this person. And we just, you know, gathered around her in the tent And are you stand, is it like she's in the middle and you're standing around her? Are you touching her or like? We had our arms wrapped around each other. It was like a group of of us, of girls. We had our arms wrapped around each other. 
And I'm pretty sure she was like on the ground with one of the leaders. Like she was like knelt over with one of the leaders and we were like huddled around her, like, like a team huddle almost. I remember she was crying and it was like midway through the prayer that I realized that we were praying over her because of a gay reason. And it was very disturbing and I felt sad for her and I was feeling confused for me and also pretty aware that I was not going to be talking about anything that was going on in my head with any of the present company for a while. (laughs) A lot has changed since that night in Romania. Semler is 32 now and very much out of the closet. They have a good relationship with their minister dad, and they're still Christian. But they want to use their music to explore the complicated parts of faith, like doubt, which most CCM music doesn't do. And it turns out, people relate to Semler's complicated approach to Christian music. Their EP Preacher's Kid went number one on the Christian charts, unseating Lauren Daigle. Their second EP, Late Bloomer, went number one too. And this past spring, they toured with Reliant K one of their favorite Christian bands from growing up. But that doesn't mean they've been embraced by the CCM industry. I totally feel like an outsider. I mean, if circumstances were different, if I was sitting before you and I was presented totally differently and I was married to a man and I put out this record about my formative experience growing up in the church and how it brought me closer to God and I never had any questions and I released it independently on DistroKid and it went number one and I only promoted it through TikTok. Let's be real. I would be signed to a Christian label by now. I would be a darling. I would be at the Dove Awards. I would have performed. They would have brought me under their wing. What's different is that I'm gay (laughs) and I swear and I talk about my doubt. And I talk about my faith. And that is not welcome in the industry. And why did you decide to brand yourself as like explicitly in the Christian music genre instead of just like, here's my album about like my experiences and I'm a Christian and that's in here sort of, you know? (laughs) Um, I was just thinking about the body of work that I'd created and the feelings that went into this project, the meditation. And I was reflecting on it and I was reflecting on the songs that were eventually going to make up Preacher's Kid. And I was like, this, I know that there's swearing on this, but if there wasn't, like this would just be a Switchfoot or Reliant K record. There's no, thematically, it is a Christian project. That's the only thing I'm really thinking about here. This is what I'm reflecting on. So why am I so scared to call it that? Why am I saying that I'm unworthy to participate in this genre and to have my own expression and perspective on faith because of who I am? Semler still has not been signed to a CCM label, in all likelihood because they're queer. But they're not planning to change their approach in order to be embraced. You won't catch them writing vague worship songs that everyone can relate to. Because I think that they'd say, like, no, Christian music, we're all about unifying, unifying, unifying. It's bringing people together. No division, no division. I'm like, you know what? I'm actually cool with dividing from people who have regressive and harmful views. I'm actually really cool to make that division. And it's strange to me 
that uh, a genre informed by faith on how we look at humanity as image bearers of God would not be comfortable with that. Would not be comfortable to say, like, if, if your music is getting played at a church that, you know, has been called out for homophobia or racism or something, you should be uncomfortable that they felt your music was so universal that it could be played there. So what's the deal with this universal worship music anyway? Why is it all there is now? Why aren't there Christian equivalents of Lizzo or Phoebe Bridgers? Karis, the CCM scholar we heard from earlier, has a hypothesis. My theory is that contemporary Christian music turned kids into culture warriors during the 90s. And then they turned them into actual warriors. Like, my theory is George W. Bush gets elected. Conservative, was it compassionate conservatism wins. Like, evangelicals win. And then we go to war. And you send off all of these, you know, people that supported him and support the war and go fight in the war. And then once you've won this, like, battle that you've been fighting for 20 years, the only thing left to do is praise God. As evangelicals were growing in numbers in the 90s, they were also gaining political power. And the two issues they were most concerned with were abortion and gay rights. As a teenager growing up in the church, Karis felt a huge sense of responsibility. So it was always, like, phrased as, like, this generation. And so, like, I graduated high school in 2000, and there was always this sense, like, all growing up, that, like, you're graduating in 2000, like, you guys are, like, the special class in, like, in church and stuff. It was always, like, this generation's going to be the one that, like, changes everything. And just, like, this immense pressure that, like, we're the ones that are going to change the culture. We're the ones that are going to, like, fix the country and, like, save everything. But, like, man, when I voted for George W. Bush, like, I just, like... It felt like finally I'm old enough to, like, I might not be able to save anybody from hell, but I can at least do my part and, like, save the country. Yeah. How do you feel now looking back on that George W. Bush vote? Oh, everything I do now is, like, motivated by trying to repair that and, like, feeling a sense of responsibility for everything that he did. Karis feels like the Christian bubble she grew up in that was so closed off from the secular world doesn't really exist anymore. Like, I have a couple of nieces and nephews who are in the church right now and listen to Christian music and go to Christian concerts, but it's like, they also listen to secular music, and it's like one, it's just like one extra thing that they do, and I mean, they, you know, go to church camp and stuff, but it's just like, an equivalent activity to everything else. I feel like you're not defined by being different in a way that we were in the 90s. And your kind of theory is that that's because evangelicalism or like evangelical values have kind of filtered into the wider culture so that it doesn't need to be like that anymore. I Yeah, in like the early 2000s, Yes, I would not say that now, but yeah. I mean, would you say that that's not happening now? Like, we just had Roe v. Wade overturned. 
Yeah, which is like, that was super weird to like, you know, spend your whole life like rooting for something and then like be on the other side when it happens and like be sad about it, but not as like emotionally attached. Like that was a very discombobulating thing. For me, it's easy to see a direct line from CCM marketing to teenagers in the 90s, branding Christianity as a rebellious countercultural movement, to those teenagers like Karis voting for George W. Bush, to our current Supreme Court. And in some ways, Karis agrees. I don't think you get to Trump without this Christian industry of the 90s. On the pop culture side, we don't have as many major CCM artists today. But we do have secular pop stars like Justin Bieber, Nick Jonas, and Selena Gomez, who have all attended services at the homophobic megachurch Hillsong. And Amy Grant received a Kennedy Center honor last year. In the 90s, the evangelical church made the argument that mainstream culture had become so feminist, so sexually liberated, and so gay that Christianity was now the counterculture. And these tactics are still being used. Moral panic around queerness and transness becoming mainstream remains a talking point in conservative media. In 2022, the power of science and literature crumble in the face of the trans lobby. They are trying to redefine basic categories, in fact, categories supplied by nature itself. 62% of likely voters think that the gender activists have just gone too far. But the United States was founded on Puritan ideals, which are woven into the very fabric of our society. Christianity, even delivered in the form of heavy metal music, can never truly be counterculture. Queerness is counterculture. To be queer is to live differently. Differently from the Christian values of sexual purity and heterosexual marriage. When Semler was praying over the girl on the mission trip, they didn't know how they would reconcile these two parts of themselves, their faith and their queerness. But now these parts aren't just reconciled. Their queerness makes their faith stronger. I view my queerness as such a blessing now. It used to be this sort of this burden, this secret for so long, but now I really view it as this way of understanding the world and understanding myself and God and how I was able to really unpack what is assigned to God as a kid, like man on a cloud. I think through queerness, I was able to break open whatever boundaries I had placed on the creator. Jennifer Knapp, the lesbian CCM artist from the beginning of the episode, feels the same way. When she left the industry, she worried that making music wouldn't fulfill her in the same way anymore. It's like this idea that anything that I did and and a non-context of that would be empty, right? That I was just creating music for money, that I was just doing a job that didn't have any value anymore. And I really wondered when I came back and started playing again, whether that was going to be true. And I was like, great, I'm going to have this empty life now. But she hasn't found that to be the case at all. Now I feel like I have way more of a ministry than I ever did because I'm genuinely open to people and I'm connecting to people and I'm like... I get to say what I'm responsible for and I'm not, you know, there's no intermediary in between me and somebody taking what I have to say and twisting it for their own agenda. After Jennifer quit CCM, she fell in love with her road manager and moved with her to Australia. They're still together. And while she didn't know she was lesbian at the time, I highly recommend her 2000 album, Lay It Down, if you want to hear some of the gayest music ever written. 
In case you didn't catch that, those lyrics are, I am wanting, needing, guilty, and greedy, unrighteous, unholy, undo me, undo me. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that sounds gay. Sounds Gay is created and produced by me, Sarah Esikoff. Our story editor is J.T. Green of Molten Heart. Cassadere is our consulting producer. Additional editing by Gianna Palmer. Original music by Chris McCormick. Mixing and sound design by Casey Holford. Fact-checking by Serena Solon. Our program manager is Sam Termine. Sounds Gay is a Stitcher Studios production and is executive produced by Sarah Bentley, Bill Crandall, Jen Derwin, Mike Spinella, Camille Stanley, and myself. Special thanks this episode to Lisa and Bob McCormick and to Andrew Mall, Leah Payne, and John Schneck, whose expertise helped me understand the world of CCM. You can find Sounds Gay on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us.